and we all sit somewhere on that scale. We all sit somewhere on that continuum and we move up and down it. So external stresses might impact that, but what we choose to do, what we understand and how we apply our skills of self-management can also move us along that scale. It can move us up to the healthy end. You're listening to the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast, the show that blends science and heart to bring you evidence-based tips and tricks for cultivating a healthy, wealthy, and meaningful life. Now, here's your host, therapist, yogi, and fellow full-life balancer, Dr. Caitlin Harkis. Hi there. Today on Wisdom for Wellbeing, I am joined by Dr. Tom Nimi. Dr. Nimi is a clinical psychologist with over 13 years of experience. His passion is preventing psychological problems in people of all ages, while also enhancing resilience and well-being. His doctoral research program in developing the Healthy Minds program produced the world's first prevention program to prevent the onset of symptoms of depression and anxiety, while also reducing the risk for eating disorders. Tom is currently working with companies, schools, and professional organizations to help them build psychological skills for mental health, well-being, and resilience. He is a prolific public speaker and corporate trainer, with more than 30,000 people having attended his workshops, training programs, invited keynote addresses, and conference presentations across Australia and overseas. Tom also maintains an active interest in psychological research, especially preventing the onset of psychological problems. He's co-authored many scholarly articles and peer-reviewed scientific publications and has also authored the new book, Apples for the Mind, Creating Emotional Balance, Peak Performance, and Lifelong Well-Being. In today's episode, Tom is actually going to share with you some of these apples for the mind, so to speak, and different tips, tricks, and strategies for maintaining your well-being so that you can work towards achieving the things that matter most to you in your life. So without further ado, here's Dr. Tom Nimi now. Welcome to Wisdom for Wellbeing. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast today and have a chat with our listeners about the amazing work you are doing in regards to what we would call preventative psychology. Thanks for having me. No, it's great to be uh, on your podcast. Well, I guess just to start things off, Tom, would you mind just sharing a little bit about who you are and the amazing work that you're doing? Well, I've, uh, I didn't start out wanting to be a psychologist. I wanted to be a race car driver, but that didn't work out. Um, <laughs> then I became a clinical psychologist eventually. And I spent many years doing, um, I guess, what you might call typical clinical psychology work. I did a lot of therapy with people of all different ages for things like anxiety and depression. And that gave me some unique insights into really these ingredients that cause people to be mentally healthy. And the concept that really infatuated me was um, psychological immunization, that if we took these skills that we teach people in the therapy room, outside the therapy room into places like schools and workplaces, um, maybe we could prevent problems and maybe we could help people to be very mentally healthy. And this is a, a, an approach to psychology many people don't think about, but that's now become 100% of, uh, of our work. And, um, and I'm, I'm thrilled now to have spent time at Flinders Uni developing our Healthy Minds program. We had some amazing results. They were published um, in 2015, I think, in a, a major international scientific journal. And since then, our work is all about preventing psychological problems. And uh, it's an exciting space to work in. And I find it really rewarding because people do connect to these ideas once they hear them. I really like how you use the term psychological immunization and we're recording this during, um, you know, the coronavirus pandemic. So hearing the idea of psychological immunization, I'm sure will flag and resonate with a lot of people. You 
also mentioned, you know, your work with healthy minds. I, I know you went to Flinders and really established an evidence-based program. You did your whole PhD developing and cultivating a program that provides the psychological immunization. Would you mind just sharing what healthy minds is so the listeners know this amazing work you're doing? Well, absolutely. I, I've, I really was thinking about what is that core toolkit? You know, what are the things that everybody can benefit from knowing and applying in their life in order to have good mental health and be less likely to get stuck in things like anxiety and depression. So this was uh, an, a question that consumed me for a while. And of course, my first step was to look at what happened when other people around the world, other researchers tried to prevent these problems. And what I found was that the outcomes for prevention were generally pretty poor. And if at first that surprised me a little bit because I know there's a, an incredibly strong evidence base for psychology in terms of uh, treatment interventions. Um, we, you know, we're pretty good most of the time for most problems in terms of helping people and there's good scientific evidence for that. Um, but in terms of preventing them, uh, the evidence was not so good. And uh, I remember distinctly just being a few weeks into my candidature and a very well-respected professor in, uh, in the psychology department I was in actually pulled me aside and she'd heard me speak about my plans for my PhD and she said, look, I love your enthusiasm. I think it's, it's great what you're trying to do, but I feel like I need to warn you that you mustn't get your hopes up because prevention research generally doesn't work. These prevention programs don't seem to be doing much. So for me, I knew that I would need to take a different approach. And it, it was interesting because it, it was just around the time that transdiagnostic theory was gaining traction. And Would you mind just explaining what transdiagnostic theory is? Absolutely. You know, if you look at the word, it, it's made up of trans and diagnostic. So trans meaning across and between and diagnostic meaning diagnosis. So across and between multiple diagnoses. It really speaks to what are those fundamental underlying things that affect people's mental health generally? Um, what is it that's, that's common between different conditions? And so this was a very different way of thinking about it because typically um, treatments and, and prevention as well were very much about targeting particular syndromes, particular clusters of symptoms or you know, what we come to know as um, various disorders. And, you know, as I said, the, the outcomes weren't great. And so for me, it was about looking at a different approach. What would be something that might work? Um, something that was new and different. And so transdiagnostic theory was just gaining traction because it said, well, psychological problems have more in common than not. Um, and that there are these processes that operate across and between many conditions. And now this really resonated for me as a clinician, and I don't know if you can relate to this, Caitlin, or not, but it occurred to me that, you know, it would be very strange to have a client who presented with anxiety, for example, but who had no symptoms of depression whatsoever. Or if someone had an eating disorder like bulimia nervosa to have no symptoms of anxiety, that as well would be strange. And of course, this is what we call comorbidity. It's the, it's the observation that problems tend to co-occur. And so that fits with what transdiagnostic theory is saying, because if, if these psychological problems tend to occur together, they seem to be related, then transdiagnostic theory says, what are the underlying mechanisms that, that are relevant to, to many of these conditions? And so for me, that was starting to think about things like, well, how do we understand and cope with emotions generally? And, you know, what is healthy thinking? Not just, not just the kind of thinking that is the antidote to depressive thinking, but also these other uh, unhelpful and biased ways of thinking that we know affect people's functioning. And what are the broad risk factors that confer risk um, to people uh, for multiple problems and what are the protective factors that are protective across multiple factors so this was like stepping back and surveying 
the big picture landscape of what makes somebody healthy in their mind. And that was the, the, the starting point of then constructing this program, which initially was eight classroom lessons to be delivered in high schools. And then that's, that's where kind of the, it all began as a program. That's incredible. So this is not just something that you, you know, were sitting around and kind of thought, oh, this would be a good idea. You actually went and did a PhD, like you compiled the research, you've published the research in a really prestigious journal around the ingredients to create psychological well-being through looking at different, I guess, commonalities between different mental health disorders or challenges people might have, as well as the protective factors that are common for a wide variety of, I guess, life, life difficulties. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's about thinking about mental health in a different way. So um, not needing to put everything into little boxes of diagnoses. And, you know, people tend to often think of themselves as either, um, you know, they, they can be quite categorical about mental health either i'm healthy or i've got a problem either i'm depressed or i'm not and you can see that's a very black and white way of thinking about mental health whereas i think we all sit somewhere on a continuum of mental health and you know at one extreme we're really not functioning well at all um, but we can be all along that kind of scale uh, all the way up to being very mentally healthy and we all sit somewhere on that scale we all sit somewhere on that continuum and we move up and down it. So external stresses might impact that, but what we choose to do, what we understand and how we apply our skills of self-management can also move us along that scale. It can move us up to the healthy end. And this is for many people, not the usual way of thinking about mental health because unlike our physical health, where we, we assume some responsibility for it. We kind of get that if we um, engage in unhealthy behaviours, if we eat the wrong thing, if we don't exercise, we know that it's going to have an impact on our bodies. So there's this, this implied responsibility. Now, knowing what we need to do doesn't always translate into actually doing it. But most people, you would say, kind of know the things they need to do to be healthy in their bodies. But with mental health, it seems to me quite different. People often don't quite understand what good mental health even is. What does it look like? What does it feel like? How can I get it? And so there's almost this fatalism where people hope and pray that they're going to be mentally healthy, but don't necessarily know how to create it for themselves. And at the heart of it, that's what the Healthy Minds program has become. It's about saying, well, these are the things that you can do to cause yourself to be very mentally healthy. And if you're very mentally healthy, you're going to function better, you're going to perform better at work, you're going to be a better partner, you're going to be a better parent, you're going to have more energy and motivation, you're going to make better decisions. All of these things that we would want for ourselves. But it seems to me that while in our society, we generally know what to do for our bodies, people don't always know what to do for their minds. And that's really what the Healthy Minds program is all about. And to facilitate that, you've come up with this amazing model, like the well-being wheel that has different components that we could focus on and that influence our health. Would you mind just sharing what that, what that wheel is, what the model is? Yeah, de definitely. The well-being wheel, Caitlin, is a, a way of destigmatizing mental health and also helping people to understand it in a really practical way. So um, where often people think about mental health in terms of you know, symptoms, um, diagnostic categories, the problems they might have, um, we say that mental health uh, is best uh, described with the word well-being because the word well-being implies that it's, um, it's about more than just not being unwell. It's about more than just not having a disorder. Um, and also being really mentally healthy is about more than just your mind. So the word well-being invites us to think about what are the ingredients in the big picture of our life that cause us to be mentally healthy. And, that, and that's not just our psychology. Um, of course, we spend a lot of time talking about the psychology of it, but it's not just about psychology. So the well-being wheel is six factors. And these are six factors that anybody can influence and kind of self-assess. Um, they could take charge of these six factors as a way of building their own mental health. Um, and each of these six factors is 
really backed by good, solid scientific evidence for its impact on mental health. So I'll, I'll take you around the wellbeing wheel so that your listeners can get a feel for, for what these ingredients are. That would be wonderful. Thank you, Tom. Well, in no particular order, the first one I'm going to talk about is our primary relationships. So what I call primary relationships or any relationship that is um, significant enough that it's likely to impact you on a day-to-day basis. So this means who we live with, who we work with closely, and who we're just emotionally closest to, where our strong bonds are. If those relationships are really healthy and they're encouraging and they support us, well, it's a no-brainer. That's going to influence our mental health. If we don't have those supports, also that's going to influence us. So this is one of those key factors. And um, you'd be surprised at how often relationships and some of these interpersonal factors really get missed in models of mental health. Um, You know, a lot of the academic literature talks about a biopsychosocial model of mental health. They say, well, yeah, there's biological factors, there's psychological factors, and there's social factors. But that kind of social interpersonal relationship side of things often too often gets ignored. Um, So we include it here. Um, The next one is about our biological needs and our bodily health. So these are really practical things like sleep, um, being hydrated, um, having a balanced diet, managing any health risks that we might have. Um, And these are all things that I think people at at the moment, you know, the current context of the world, as you mentioned, the COVID-19 pandemic, these are things that that they seem like little things. They seem like things that we just let run on automatic pilot, but we could kind of take charge of these as opportunities to to maintain our mental health. It's a really Um, good message in a time where it feels like we don't have a lot of control. There's a degree of uncertainty we're operating within, but this is something where we can take control in a really positive manner by the sounds. Yeah, I I think so. I think these are the things we can take stock of and make sure that we're doing really well. Um, The third factor is exercise. Now, there'd be an argument to say that that's a, a bodily need and it's about biological health, but we deliberately give it an entire segment of its own. And that's because we know that exercise has such a pervasive influence on a person's mood and their ability to um, manage stress, basically. So, um, you know, even for some people who are suffering from mild depression, if they're very inactive, then for a subset of those people, simply exercising vigorously, regularly, could be the thing that breaks them out of their depression. That's um, how significant exercise is. So as a preventive strategy, it's also really powerful. Um, anytime somebody goes and exercises, they are doing a mental health strategy. And so um, at the moment, people are probably thinking, oh, but I'm, I'm isolating, I'm stuck at home, I can't get to the gym or I can't go here and there. Well, um, that's really a, a challenge that is incumbent upon us is to be flexible right now. So exercising at home, um, it's easy for me because I often exercise at home. It's just one of the things that I do. Um, it's, it's an opportunity for people to boost their mental health right now. And probably a chance, as you said, to be flexible and creative about how they might do it differently if they always went to the gym before. I know a lot of gyms are putting classes online. And if they haven't, I think a lot of local businesses would probably love to have someone new come and join their classes or, you know, YouTube something if they need a workout idea. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I I think that's an opportunity for everyone right now listening is if you're not exercising, this is a way you can boost your mental health. Um, then we come to psychological skills. Now, this is this is the segment of the well-being wheel that, for many people, is a bit of a mystery. Um, you know, it's funny, Caitlin. I, I think people assume a level of esoteric knowledge in psychology. There's, um, I had a I had an Uber driver several months back um, when I told him I was a psychologist. He asked what I did for a living. I told him and he nearly ran off the road and he, he looked at me and said, so you know what I'm thinking? <laughs> and I, I said to him, no, mate, I'm, I'm not a psychic. I'm a psychologist. And uh, he, there was sort of this assumption that 
I was somehow reading his mind. And people often do ascribe this kind of level of esoteric um, knowledge to psychologists that um, isn't really justified. I mean, certainly intuition is a thing, but, um, you know, people, are, I remember doing undergraduate study and friends saying, oh, you're analysing me. And I was like, no, I'm not. I'm really not. Um, and <laughs> Please invite me to the party. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, psychological skills for many people is a mystery. And if, if we introduce the wellbeing wheel in one of our Healthy Minds workshops, and if I don't give examples of what I mean, invariably someone will put up their hand and say, but what do you even mean? What are psychological skills? So this really is the heart of what we mostly teach. I mean, the sleep, the exercise, we can get that knowledge all over the place, but the psychological stuff is what we really hone in on. So for people listening, the, the things that we're talking about are things like our ability to make good decisions when we're feeling strong emotions. It's about thinking in ways that are healthy and helpful to us. And it's also about things like how we relate to ourselves, um, how we treat ourselves, how we evaluate and judge ourselves. Um, that's another big part of it. So that's something we can expand on in a minute, if you like. There's always a lot to talk about with psychological skills. Um, and then the last couple of segments on the wellbeing wheel, um, the next one is I call it the balance segment. And it says that um, part of being mentally healthy means having fun for fun's sake. Um, having interests outside of our, our work or our schooling and just having a, a social life generally. So this is, um, uh, you know, it's probably one of the things that's most challenged at the moment if people are stuck at home and that kind of thing. But um, we've got to kind of take this as a challenge. We've got to make it a project. How can we have that fun? How can we keep those social connections going? Um and then the final one is what we call the big picture segment. And that's about meaning and purpose. That's about living according to our, our most deeply held values. Why do we get up in the morning? What really matters in life? Why am I here? What's my contribution to the world? These kind of things, no matter what the answer, if, if you can tune into that, then that's a really important thing that's going to sustain you. That, that's about rising above the short-term day-to-day ups and downs and, um, and, and being able to see a bigger picture sense of progress. Um, so if we live according to those values, then that's, I think, a really healthy thing. If we know that we are compromising what we in our heart know is right or important, then that's going to detract from our well-being. Okay. This is incredible. So it's a real framework that people can actually look at and see how they're going in each of the areas. So looking at their relationships, kind of exploring whether they're supportive, whether they're validating, look at how they're treating themselves in regards to their biological needs, how they're supporting their health in that framework, which is the more traditional model we have perhaps of health, making sure that they're getting an appropriate amount of exercise, um, that they're taking care of their psychological health. And you gave some key questions questions or a bit of an outline as to what is so that people aren't sitting there going, I can't read minds yet. Um, looking at, you know, social life and how we, how we might be really, again, using the word flexible in how we live that in the time of COVID-19, but more generally making sure that we've got some leisure activities and some joy in our lives. And then looking at our sense of meaning, purpose, and our values to really guide us. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, these are, are six things that make it pragmatic. You know, it's it's not talking about symptoms here. We're not talking about labels and diagnoses. And so it, it sidesteps a lot of the assumptions that people make when they hear the phrase mental health. Because isn't it true that for so many people, just hearing that phrase mental health conjures images of ill health and so we slip into that mindset of just thinking about identifying problems and receiving treatment. We sort of go back into this medical model that in a way is a bit disempowering because if I'm ill, then the person I look to to fix me is a doctor or, or, or a health professional. Um, whereas if I don't think of it as just being, am I ill or not, then it's something I can take charge of. And that's the empowering message here. And with that, 
you know, since I, I know that you've got so much knowledge around this, so we won't be able to unpack it all today, but I wonder if you could share with us a little bit about how we do cultivate good psychological health in that psychological health dimension. And you'd spoken earlier about emotions. And for instance, you gave the example of, you know, how we cope with strong emotions. Would that be an okay place to start? Maybe looking at emotions and stress given our current climate? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think that kind of uh, idea of understanding what emotions are, why we have them, what we can do about it is a really big step forward for most people because, um, and, you know, these, these are questions we will often ask audiences is where do feelings come from? Um, why do we have emotions? Um, what's, what's their purpose? How can we manage them well? And if we just asked people on the street those questions, I think it would be a real struggle to get substantive answers. But when we sit back now and think about those questions, where do feelings come from? What's their purpose? How can I manage them well? What does a healthy emotional life look like? Things like that. These are pretty important questions. These are, it's pretty important for us to be able to answer these questions in order to have the kind of self-knowledge that enables us to be at our best, to function really well. And so um, a big part of what we teach people is, is the answers to those questions. When you know the answers to those questions, emotions don't seem intimidating uh, anymore, or at least not as intimidating. And we don't feel like our lives are being driven and governed by emotions and their urges. Um, that's a very empowering step for a human being to take. And um, so I guess we can have a go at answering some of those now, if you like, Caitlin. Yeah, would that be okay? Maybe if we start with where where feelings come from? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, people um, might say, well, don't feelings happen in your brain or don't they come from your heart? These are all, um, I think, valid perspectives to a certain degree. But my psychological answer to that is that um, our feelings don't really come from events in our life. And probably that would be the most common answer. People would say, well, something happens. And then as a direct response, I have a feeling. So if something, um, something really frustrating happens, I'm going to feel angry. If, um, if something terrible happens, I'm going to feel upset or sad or whatever the case may be. But really what psychologists have learnt is that it's not really the event itself that causes how we feel. It's actually how we think about and interpret that event. So um, an example I often give is just a simple everyday one that if you arrange to meet your friend and half an hour had gone by past the meeting time, your friend hasn't shown up, there's a few different possible emotions, probably many different possible emotions that someone might feel. Um, I'm sure some people listening might think, well, that'd really annoy me. I'd be angry. Um, some people might think, well, gee, I'd be really worried. Others might feel really dejected and let down and others might not be that bothered at all. They might still be feeling calm. And these are all valid and quite possible outcomes. But we need to realise that it's, it's actually that automatic thought. We call them automatic thoughts because they're ways of thinking that are often subconscious, often outside our awareness. And anytime you mention subconscious, people start thinking it's getting a bit woo-woo. But really, all we mean is we're just not fully aware in the moment of all our thoughts. Um, and it would be impossible to be aware of all our thoughts every day because our brains do so much information processing. So if that automatic thought that we're not really consciously aware of when we're having it, but if that automatic thought is, gee, this is really rude, you know, they're not respecting my time that's likely to be the thought that causes us to feel angry or annoyed. If the thought is, well, something terrible has happened and that's our assumption, that's our automatic thought, then you can understand someone might be feeling worried or anxious in response to that. Um, the person who thinks I'm not important enough for them to have remembered, they've, they've stood me up, is going to be the person who feels dejected and down. Um, and the, a, a person who might be sitting there saying, well, I'm sure they're stuck in traffic or we'll figure out another time. It's not a big deal. We'll reschedule it. They're likely not to have a particularly strong emotion. 
Now, for some of your listeners right now, they might be thinking, but what do we know about the person? Who is it? You know, what are they usually late? And of course, all of that context will inform our thoughts. But this principle is really the most important thing to know about is that our thinking strongly influences how we feel. So psychologists have learned that we can develop habits of thinking that predispose us to different emotions. So we can, some people will have a style of thinking where they automatically think, they automatically assume the worst case scenario. So some, some people listening might relate to this. We call this catastrophizing. And it's kind of when we overestimate the chances of something going wrong. It's when we always overestimate how bad it would be if something went wrong. And for those people, all of these little kind of innocuous things that could happen day to day, whether it's our friend doesn't ring us back when they said they would, or we get a, a, an email from the boss saying they want to see us at the end of the day, or whatever the case may be, if that's going through the filter of catastrophic thinking, then it's easy to understand how that person could become stuck in anxiety. That makes a lot of sense. So it's something that happens pretty quickly. This automatic thought crops up and a lot of people, you know, it being automatic and it, it arising really almost instantaneously might not be something that people are even aware is so influential in regards to the emotions that they're experiencing. But it sounds like the wisdom you're providing highlights to listeners to watch for that, to notice if certain thinking patterns, certain styles like always looking for the worst case scenario or what we call catastrophizing. If those patterns are coming up and earlier today, you described something called black and white thinking. So something being, you know, either good or bad, right or wrong, that those styles of thinking might be something we can start to be aware of and mindful of. We can, we can start to tune into it. I think for many people, they are uh, completely unaware of their automatic thoughts, but part of having that self-wisdom, if you like, is starting to just tune into what those habits are. I mean, often in our regular day-to-day -day life, we would start to notice our good and bad habits, things that we tend to do, things that might be healthy or not. Um, but in our psychological lives, we need to um, uh, start tuning into some of these thinking patterns, perhaps. So the, the starting point is to notice what are your patterns of emotions because that's the easier thing to notice. So if anyone says, well, yeah, gee, I'm always that person who's really worried or feeling panicked, then we can take a step back and we can ask, well, if you had to take a guess at it and write it out in a sentence, what was the thought that caused you to feel panicked? If you had to put it into a statement and that's when we get this window into our automatic thoughts and often it's really helpful for people to diarize their thoughts, just literally to write them down when they're feeling strong emotions. You know, I'm feeling this because I was thinking and feel, answer that sentence. That's a great action that people can take away. So listeners right now, <laughs> if you're driving, maybe not, but otherwise maybe make a note that you can do this, that you can go, I'm feeling this because I was thinking this to start to diarize it really regularly and start to give that same attention to your psychological health that you might be doing to other areas in regards to your physical health and things that we feel perhaps more aware of or in control of. Why, why would someone be prone to, to experiencing anxiety? What you know, you mentioned that sometimes emotions have a purpose. What's what's going on with the purpose? Why do why do we feel these uncomfortable things? <laughs> well, the feeling, the emotions themselves. Um, there's there's kind of two questions here. One is, you know, what's the purpose of emotions, and the other is, why would someone get stuck in a particular emotion? And really, that that stuckness is really the sign of. Um, yeah, maybe it being a problem, not necessarily a, a disaster. It's very common for people to be stuck in, in particular emotions, very common. It's part of being human. But if we did notice that we're kind of all like day after day, we're feeling worried or, or something's happened and a week later, my prevailing feeling is panicked and anxious, then that's when we need to say, okay, why am I stuck in this state? Um, and and, and why are my emotions not like the weather? Because really that's the hallmark, I think, of a healthy emotional life is when emotions come and go. And But the, the answer of why we have emotions at all, I mean, we know they've kind of come from this, this thinking 
they also come from, you know, our, our thoughts aren't always verbal. They aren't always in, in words and sentences, but that's, that's a good way of capturing them. It can also be in images. Um, and it stems from things like our perception of threat. So um, if you want to know why we are the way we are, look to evolution. Evolution gives us a lot of clues as to why we are the way we are. And so from an emotional standpoint, an emotion like fear is very adaptive. People, people with anxiety disorders say they want to get rid of fear. Often, I want to get rid of this feeling. And my message to them is, well, we don't want to get rid of it completely. We don't want to be stuck in it, but we don't want to get rid of it. Because if we as humans couldn't experience fear, we'd be dead. None of us would exist now because that ability to perceive threat, to receive those physiological uh, correlates of anxiety, a racing heart and, you know, blood pumping around our body that enabled us to keep ourselves safe. So the, the gift of fear, the purpose of fear is to be safety seeking. Um, so we can almost think about emotions as having, uh, a really, uh, really helpful, purposeful side to each of them. And the, the, the shadow side or the, the difficult part of these emotions is either that subjectively they just don't feel that nice sometimes or that if we let that emotion run our life, then that could cause problems. So emotions are often designed for a short-term response to help us in the moment and then we go back to a balanced state. So fear, fear is one example of how it's adaptive. That's a really a beautiful framework. I've, I've never heard of the gift of fear, but what a lovely way to practice some willingness to receive, to experience that emotion. Because if we know that it is something that evolved to help us survive and you know got us here to this point in evolution today, it does change the relationship. And then in the context of the weather, you know, emotions coming and going, like a thunder shower might show up one day and the next day maybe we get a rainbow. It makes it feel less scary, less unknown if we know that there's perhaps going to be some fluctuation. And if there isn't, then that's when we might have to look to seek a little bit of support and help so we can get back on board with the idea of emotions coming and going, even the ones that might subjectively feel more uncomfortable. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And this is the big trap for many people is that there is a prevailing myth which says, if I'm mentally healthy, I must feel good. And it's a myth. It's nice to feel good. We want to feel good regularly, but it's not normal to feel good all the time. And if people see not feeling good, not feeling happy, let's say, in any given moment, if they, if they judge that as their best indicator of whether or not they're mentally healthy, then I think many people are going to be judging their mental health harshly, saying, well, I'm, I'm not there yet or something's not right. I'm not feeling happy. And I can understand why people hold that as the ultimate outcome they feel that being happy is kind of all the time is what they're working towards many parts of our society is built up to give us that impression um and i certainly before i understand understood all of these things i was of the view that you know my purpose in life was to get things lined up to a point where i just felt good all the time i thought that was going to be the payoff um it's kind of almost this hedonistic goal um but I've since realized that life having meaning and purpose, uh, richness, excitement, challenge for me is much more important than just feeling good all the time. I want to feel good regularly, but um, it's definitely not normal to feel good all the time. So let's not judge ourselves if we're not feeling happy on, in any given moment. There's two things I want to grab from that, Tom. You mentioned life having meaning and purpose and with that, you know, it kind of leads to perhaps the understanding that there's going to be some challenges or some stressors along the way in regards to creating a life that has meaning and purpose. It may not always be easy. And in that pursuit, it may mean that things do not feel happy all the time, but that there's an underlying framework for why you might do something that's more difficult or challenging. Would you mind talking us through how we manage stress or what it means because a lot of a lot of us are quite nervous around feeling stressed and are worried about it yeah and and that's where if we're just 
if we see some of these so-called negative emotional states as being natural and normal, then we can be willing to accept them. And that's kind of the, the first step is to say, well, this is natural. This is part of life. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with me just because from time to time I'm feeling stressed or uncomfortable or angry or sad. All of those things are absolutely part of a healthy psychological life. Um, and so for people who hold the view that, let's say, stress, for example, if they hold the view that stress is harmful, stress is bad, then when inevitably in the course of a meaningful life that has responsibility and involves challenging, difficult things, we do experience stress, it's going to happen, then we might judge ourselves as like, I'm, I'm going to get stressed about being stressed because if, if stress is bad, if stress is harmful, holy moly, I'm stressed and now I'm stressed about being stressed. It compounds itself. And so another one of these myths that we need to bust is that stress is inherently bad because it's not. And some stress is good for us. Some stress helps us perform well. If you've got, uh, you know, when we're on holidays or it's on the weekend, sure, we don't want to feel stressed. We want to feel relaxed and calm, perhaps. Um, we might want to feel a bit excited while you're watching your favourite football team play or whatever the case <laughs> may be. But mostly you might want to feel calm and relaxed. That's fine. But in my working week, I know for me, I don't want to feel perfectly calm. I want to have a bit of pressure, a bit of stress because it makes me alert. It means I don't put things off. I make decisions. Uh, I'm efficient. Um, and I, I tend to perform better. And this is actually something that's well recognized in psychology. It's called the Yerkes-Dodson law. And the Yerkes-Dodson law has shown us that um, stress isn't inherently good or bad. It's about having the right amount at the right time. And on most tasks, we're going to perform better if we've got mild to moderate stress than no stress at all. So, of course, we don't want to be overstressed. We don't want to be stuck in a state of, you know, overwhelming, traumatic or cumulative stress. But mild to moderate stress is healthy and actually desirable sometimes. That's beautiful. So we could all be keeping that in mind that you know, when we consider the challenges that we might be approaching in our life, that that's not a bad thing to feel a little bit stressed about them. That could actually enhance our performance. So rather than being, as you said, stressed about being stressed, we might be able to embrace and recognize the positive element that comes with this emotional experience. Yeah, absolutely. And we can also then have like a willingness to experience it. And I, what I'm saying to people at now, uh, the moment dealing with this pandemic is, you know, there, there probably will be frustrations and stresses from just from the sheer loss of control and freedoms that we normally have. Some people are worried about, um, you know, the virus itself. Some people are worried about their financial implications of what's going on at the moment. And that's all completely fair enough that they have those worries. Um, I'm suggesting to people that if, you know, if, if you're finding that you're more stressed than normal, if you've got these frustrations in your life because of the pressure that's around you. Um, treat it like an uninvited guest. You know, treat it like you are graciously allowing it to be in your life temporarily. Because if you have that mindset of being willing to accept it, doesn't mean you like it, it doesn't mean you want it, but you're willing to accept that it's there just for the time being, it will free you up to do the other important things that you need to do. It's going to give you some headspace to focus on your relationships, to focus on life and just get done what you need to get done. How beautiful to practice being a gracious host to these uninvited experiences to our uninvited guests that I'm sure we can all empathize with. As we sort of start to wrap things up, I was wondering if you would also give the listeners a bit of an overview of the concept of self-compassion just quickly, because I wonder if that applies as well. You know, when we're experiencing these uncomfortable emotions or feeling particularly overwhelmed, you've, you've focused a lot on self-compassion in your work. And I think that sounds like a really beautiful, another gift that we could, we could give the listeners. <laughs> Oh, definitely. And, and when we talk about transdiagnostic factors, one of the biggest protective factors against all forms of mental ill health, I think, is self-compassion. And this is a very different concept to the phrase 
self-esteem, which we all hear a lot about, you know, for years, decades, even it's been about self-esteem, helping people to feel good, praising them, evaluating ourselves favorably. Um, but self-esteem is not everything it's cracked up to be. And self-compassion is much more powerful. And self-compassion is how do I treat myself? How do I treat myself when I'm going through a difficult time or I'm having a bad day or I've made a mistake? Do I treat myself with that same kindness and forgiveness and acceptance that I would someone that I really cared about? Um, and for many people, they don't. They don't afford themselves the same kindness and forgiveness that they afford the people that they care about. And this is a, a, a big opportunity for people to change their emotional lives. It's simply to say, well, I can be my own best friend. I, I can be a wise, supportive and encouraging voice to myself. I realized in my late teens that I was more harsh and hard-hearted and judgmental of myself than the people around me. And this had become a stumbling block emotionally. Um, so when I started to just comprehend and I didn't, I wasn't familiar with the terminology self-compassion back then, but it was just this idea I could be a friend to myself. Um, and that really changed my life. Um, it, it, it meant that I could rely on myself for what I needed. I could give myself comfort. I could give myself encouragement. Um, that's a powerful thing. You know, we, we spend our whole lives in our own heads with this kind of self-talk that is often automatic and subconscious. So it can be transformative for people to say, I'm not going to allow myself to be treated in a harsh manner that is not fair. I'm going to treat myself with kindness. Um, and that single shift for some people is just life-changing. And you use the word powerful. You know, it's interesting to me to hear that self-compassion, which is something that sometimes we think, oh, like that's a little bit like weak or not, not particularly helpful. Like I wouldn't do anything if I was that compassionate to myself that you actually use the words powerful and highlighted how differently we treat other people in our lives and the different compassion and kindness and encouragement that we might provide to someone we care about. And we know that when we treat those people well, they feel better, perform better, everything in their life is perhaps a little bit more smooth sailing. And that if we reflect that back on ourselves, what a powerful gift then. It, it is powerful. And, and it's something that strong, powerful people can do. Um, one of the most telling pieces of research uh, to come out of the self-compassion literature was by Kristen Neff, who looked at um, returned servicemen and women in the Marines and the Army, and they'd come back from war zones in um, Afghanistan, in the Middle East, and um, they looked at their levels of self-compassion and found that self-compassion was more predictive of whether or not they were traumatised by war than by how much combat exposure they saw. Wow, so that's incredible. It's it. This tells us, and this these are not wishy washy, weak, soft, you know, people. These are these are soldiers, and their self compassion was the thing that protected them from being traumatized. So, um, it, it is powerful and can do incredible things for us in terms of how you know listeners might be able to start to cultivate their psychological skills. You through Healthy Minds, do some amazing work around some secrets. You know, you mentioned that psychological um, well-being is sometimes considered to be this mystery. So you introduce, introduce participants to the secrets of Healthy Minds. Would you share a bit about how people can access that wisdom or access some apples for the minds the same way we might try and keep a doctor away by eating exactly. an apple each day. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. So of course we work with schools and companies, but individuals can access all of the uh, information that we share and teach. Um, one of the ways is um, through one of our online workshops. So uh, our flagship workshop is called Seven Secrets to a Healthy Mind. And that is actually on our website, healthymindsprogram.com. There's a clear link to click through to that if people would like to. Uh, and I'll to put a link in the show notes too. That'd be great. Yeah. And the other thing is is my book, Apples for the Mind. I, um, uh, I, I spent years... 
um, wrestling with um, my own need for self-compassion and persistence and healthy stress to, to really produce this book that contains pretty much all of the really important things that we teach. Um, so that's called Apples for the Mind, and that's um, uh, available at um, you know, all of the major online book retailers. And again, I'll put a link and not to make too many puns around the apples, but my understanding, you've got it in bite-sized chunks, you know, chapters where people could easily consume the material each day. You know, maybe this could be part of the self-care that we give ourselves while we're in isolation to give ourselves a little bit of time each day where we might consume something that's really healthful for our mind to cultivate psychological being, resilience, and give ourselves that gift. Yeah, well, I say on on the on the back cover of the book, I say it's twenty true things that everybody needs to know. So um, you could have an apple a day. How about that? I love it. Well, thank you, Tom, so much for your time and your wisdom. And I will put all of the links to your amazing resources in the show notes. But as listeners will have heard, they can, of course, head on over to your website to download The Seven Secrets to a Healthy Mind and to get a link to purchase your book and consume this amazing material for our mind in a time that does feel a little bit uncertain for a lot of us. Well, I think there's a lot that we can do to change our experience. And really, this is a time where psychological factors are going to make the difference. It's when people understanding and taking charge of their well-being is going to make the difference. So thanks very much for having me. I hope that you found this interview with Dr. Nimi as applicable and as practical as I did. In fact, one of my gratitudes for today might even be having this opportunity to hear more about these evidence-based strategies that Dr. Nimi has introduced. Please grab yourself a copy of his new book, Apples for the Mind, Creating Emotional Balance, Peak Performance, and Lifelong Wellbeing. Of course, you can find out more at healthymindsprogram.com, as well as we'll have all of the links to Tom's book and his amazing work in the show notes at drcaitlin.com. If you do have a moment, it would mean so much to me if you would just take a couple of minutes to leave a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really helps other people find this program and spread the word about how we can create a community of wellness. Now, just a quick tip, iTunes is not as easy for leaving a review. So if you head to drcaitlin.com, I've put a little video up there describing how to actually do it, or please just email me hello at drcaitlin.com and I can help you out. Thank you so much for your support. It really means the world to me. Until next week, I'm wishing you well. Thanks for joining us this week on the Wisdom for Wellbeing podcast. Please visit drcaitlin.com to connect, find show notes, other episodes, and to subscribe. While you're at it, if you find value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating or perhaps simply tell a friend about the show. Wisdom for Wellbeing is not a substitute for professional, individualized mental health treatment. If you are in crisis, please contact 000, your local emergency number if you are outside of Australia, or attend your local hospital ED.